2: Um, I'm Alan Kelly. Uh, I'm live from London. <laughs> um, I, a friend of mine, conference organizer, once billed me on the conference as a contrarian. And I have a little bit of a reputation for that, possibly because I'm one of the people who started the no projects meme on Twitter. <laughs> um, but I just think a little bit differently. Um, so some people love what I do, and some people think I'm nuts. <laughs>
0: That is a great way to start us off. Uh, greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hersko. With me, I have a good friend of mine, Jonathan Schneider. John, welcome.
1: Howdy, howdy. Welcome.
0: And as if you heard in the intro, we have esteemed guest Alan Kelly joining us. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Alan, um, along with that intro, for our listeners that may not be familiar with you and your, your body of work, your oeuvre, to steal a term mm-hmm. from Chris Merman, how would you, how would you describe, like, if, if I ran into you at a bar and I said, hey, Alan, what do you do? How would you pitch that back, aside from the contrarian
2: aspect? <laughs> you know what? People call me an agile coach. And I fit into that box the world has defined as agile coach. But I really don't like the title, you know, because I know what real coaches do. And I do some of that. But I also I'm not shy of saying I think what you need to do is do it this way, and sometimes like straight out advice, and sometimes like training, sometimes like writing, you know. So I know that temperamentally I am not an agony aunt. I'm not I'm not a good coach. I can do a bit of it. So I tend to call myself an agile guide. You know, I'm I'm here to help people toward this the sunlit uplands, and as much as I'm All about Agile. I'm also painfully aware of the problems with that title and how I think a lot of us wish it would go away but you try googling for half of these things and if you don't have the word Agile in there you'll find something completely different. Um, Basically I help companies and teams get better and I'm a software developer of old. I used to be a hardcore C++ programmer so I usually like working with technology teams I've worked with other teams, but I keep going back to software because software is eating the world, as they say.
0: Perfect. And you are absolutely, absolutely right. How many companies have come out and said, we are no longer a financial services company. We are no longer a health company, health insurance company. We are a technology yeah. company that does financial services. We are a technology company that does healthcare or sick care, depending on how you look at it. So it's, it's very, very apropos. So Alan ended up uh, on the show today. Because somehow John and I got into a conversation about OKRs. And just you know serendipitously, John and I were chatting. I hop into Mike Burrows, shout out to Mike Burrows and his Agenda Shift pro, uh, program. I hopped into his Slack channel, and I saw that uh, he wrote the intro to Alan's book, Succeeding with OKRs and Agile. Mm-hmm. So I then send the title to John, and I'm like, John, I just came across this. Dive in. And I was going to use John as my guinea pig to see, you know, do I really need to buy another Agile book? So I let John go for a month. I didn't bother him. And then I finally said, John, how are you doing with the book? He goes, oh man, it's great. I'm halfway through. I got a lot of questions. It's really making me think. I said, well, here, I got to buy another one. So <laughs> bought another one. And then I reached out to Alan and we said, Alan, you know, you, would you be interested in coming on? Because John and I are both coming across things that we really want to discuss. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: if, again, for our listeners, and I will put a uh, link in the show notes, the title of the book is Succeeding with OKRs and Agile, How to Create and Deliver Objectives and Key Results for Teams. And Alan, you really do a... <laughs> excuse me, you do a great job of digging into, I, I, I like how you start with just talking about what OKRs aren't. It's not a feature, right? It's, and that's one of the big, one of the first things, that, you know, I have all these, you know, notes and stuff and highlights. And that was one of the first things I wrote down was OKR equals slash feature. Can we talk a little bit about that and how that, how that preconceived notion came about, but how do we best combat it?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess a lot of my experience, I was working at, as they say, a financial services organization. But let me caveat that and say, it was not a bank. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, And um, I was coaching there, agile coaching. And we were trying to convert this company. One day, we were just told, and thou shall use OKRs. And me and the agile coach were like, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> uh, and we'd all... Had some acquaintance with OKRs, but none of us are doing it in depth. And you know, we get into them. And when you first look at them, it's so obvious to say, "Oh, hang on, the objective is the epic, and these key results are features. They're, they're stories. They're this. but actually, when you dig into, it, hang on, it's more than that. We're not. We don't want to be a feature factory. And I think this this is a key thing. Some people do interpret OKRs as um, the new backlog and they can be a bit of a feature factory but and this is where fit and Mike's agenda shifts so well it's about outcomes it's not about features it's not about putting sausage meat in and getting sausages out it's about saying you know we need to put a meal on the table tonight we need to feed a family of four and we have some constraints and we have the people we have how can we best feed that family tonight. And if you interpret it like that, you're actually carving out a lot of space for the team, the people who are are gonna deliver these OCOs, you're carving out a lot of space for them to be creative and for them to do good work and for them to embody all the Agile principles. If all you're doing is thinking, this is another way of saying, here's a list of things we want you to do then you might as well just stick with your backlog and your sprints and everything else. Uh, if you're gonna, you know, so stick with them. Don't add anything new. Yeah. The 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 backlog. You
0: know, you talked about. You know, you made a joke about the no backlog. You know, meme. Um, one of your quotes. One of your quotes in the book that I, I gratuitously copied was, um, uh, "Where was it? Uh, Items in the backlog and never done are waste. If something is a good idea, you will think of it again and again." And I have used that line (laughs) countless times without even knowing that I owe you royalties. And whenever I say that people kind of gives you this funny look because they're told that you need a backlog. You need a backlog. Whereas you're spot on in the sense of if it's a good idea, it's going to come up again. And then it's going to come up again. It's going to come up again. You're going to say, Hey, you know what? We've talked about this a couple of times. We probably should go down this rabbit hole. Whereas that false Sense of accomplishment for looking at this pile of things that may kind of, sort of, maybe, quasi get done at some point. Mm-hmm. It's, it's. I, I think, and, and John, I'd be curious to hear what you think. I think it's kind of like a false sense of control, right? I've got this giant backlog, so now I've, I've mitigated that risk. Where if anybody's read any to see him, Taleb's work, you know that risk doesn't go away; it just gets pushed off somewhere else.
1: Yeah, and I'll follow up with another quote there that was actually super early in the reads too. That are it's a there are those who see okay uh, who see OKRs as a reinvention of projects, they see them as a command and control tool used by managers, they see them as a form of requirements document, and they see the same goal displacement failures. That goes back to, I mean, you were mentioning feature factories and there are companies that are just jumping all the way from waterfall project command and control, just let's do OKRs. And it's even more of a displacement of mindset and how to actually properly approach it which is another interesting topic i was going to ask you about alan
2: um yeah 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 i love that you've brought that up right now because i have i've just the call i had before this one i've sat down with a client the product owner and the project manager and we have combed through the backlog and we didn't remove it completely we we said what stuff do we really need to do soon and there's now five items in that new mini backlog. And there's all the technical stuff the devs have put in there, you know, tech deck and freestanding tasks. And we've put, we carefully put that somewhere else because the, and all the other stuff, we just deleted. One by one, we deleted every item because a lot of them, as we were saying, were, we just, they were a good idea to somebody once upon a time. <laughs> and the product don't even fessed up. they were a good idea, to him once upon a time. But now why, you know, and, and you, you, you know your point there John about jumping from from one thing to the other you know it's such a massive cultural shift, and in yeah. many organizations it's not just they have the culture of here is the list of things for you to do, whether that be a requirements document, a Gantt chart or a backlog here's the list of things for you to do. success is ticking all of them, and you don't answer back, just do it and To jump to OKRs, to jump to true Agile, in fact, and to jump to OKRs is realising, hang on, guys. You you aren't just there to do what you're told. You're there to cooperatively create, co-create things here. We have problems. You're the technology experts. How are we going to solve them? And to make that jump is such a massive cultural leap. I'm not sure many of today's companies can make it. very, very big cognitive shift, your mental model
0: completely changes. You know, you made a, you made a remark out the way success is typically measured is we have this list of things to do and we check boxes. Um, The older I get, the more philosophical I get. I was recently reading a book about uh, Greek philosophers and I think it was Eumenides, maybe Eumenides, Euripides, one of them had the idea of the heap where you have a logical assumption that's correct and then, based upon that logical assumption, you make another logical assumption, another logical assumption, all of which add up to being correct, but they end up with a totally wrong answer. Oh, and goodness. I think that's the that's the correlation to that to that idea of management, where John and Alan, Team John, Team Allen, they ticked all the boxes, but then you know, here's a, you know, the waiter comes to your table and says, "Here's the chicken parm that you ordered." However, this meal is completely inedible. That's really what it ends up with, right? Yeah, because yeah. you've you've ticked boxes to a, to a logical end that don't necessarily make sense. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's great you you're talking about philosophy there. You know, I was a bit like yourself, reading outside of my my comfort zone the other month, and I, I was reading about physics, and I was struck by you know quantum physics at at the atom level, the sub level. Quantum physics is completely different to physics at the astronomical level. Physicists know that when we're talking about atoms and Higgs bosons and God knows what else, there's one set of rules you need to use. Now, they're not different when you move up to our everyday size, let alone the astronomical size, but you're going to use a different rule set to, to work with this thing because the rules are some of are approximations. But if you reduced everything to what, what Higgs Boson is doing, you'll be here all day. You need different rules of different sizes. And that provides a perfect lead into one of the other one-liners I took out of the
0: book. Um, think broadly and execute narrowly. And that was mm-hmm. another one where I t- kind of took a step back and, you know, I was outside reading in the sun and I'm staring up into the sky because I'm just rattling that around in my head because that's one of the things that we, again, ticking boxes. I tick all the boxes, I'm complete. You, you, you emphasize a cup quite a few times in the book that we do need to take a step back and broadly look at what we're trying to do and set that North Star. But then when the execution comes, it should be as fine tu- fine-tuned as possible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a difficult ask. I think each one of us naturally inclines to to narrow or broad. You know, we, we tend to be like, and to put those blinkers on and say, look, we're going to execute against that can be really difficult. And we're, we're knowingly accepting some blindness. But if we don't focus on something, if we spend all our days pontificating and talking about philosophy and <laughs> physics, we're not going to get anything done, and so I think we 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 need to interleave these things. And this is where the beauty of iteration can come in. It, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: yeah, that's a good segue actually, because um, there's a good quote: "There is time for planning and a time for doing. Most of the quarter gets spent doing, but there's a time set aside for thinking, planning, and learning." So the question I had with like around that is: just How does one differentiate the importance, effort, and priority between those? Um, is it role driven? You know what? What is
2: it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think as I stick a finger in the air, I'm going to say one week of of thinking and planning and twelve weeks of executing. And that's more because the, the the year divides up nicely into four quarters on that basis. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. empirical evidence, but I think there is a there is a role aspect here in uh, um. For me, the role we call product owner or Scrum calls product owner, and you may call it something different in your context, and it's often filled by business analysts or product manager. That person and the skills they have is more about outside of the organization, outside of the development team. It's about what do our customers, our stakeholders, even our managers, if I can mention those people, what will add value and those people. Are you know particular product managers? They're on the road. They're talking to these people. They're gathering this information, and they're bringing it back. And I'm not saying developers shouldn't be involved, but developers are masters of the code and their skill set around the code, and they are the people who are day to day executing on the small. And yes, the, the product owner type people they need to spend time involved in the small, but they also have this license. get out there and think broad to bring the information in and as teams get larger you you can justify more people doing that kind of stuff on a small team you know on on what I call a minimally viable team two or three people there's there's gonna have to be some multitasking here Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that's fair yeah that's a good point um so Jay if if, thinking about the based of the conversations we were having it definitely seems like it, you could almost say and now, and I'm curious on your thoughts, too, about based as a follow-up, um, is even though you say most of the quarter gets spent doing, doing seems subjective because I'm assuming the marketing and people doing that research think they're actually doing work as part of the product, even though it's not software development, you yeah. know, they view it as execution, right? So yeah. the engineers are like, oh, you're just doing planning. And they're like, no, this is me doing work. Oh, yes. So yeah, it's a little yeah, gray, yes. right?
2: <laughs> this word planning. You know, we engineers have, have persuaded ourselves that planning is people doing pointless work with Gantt shots. <laughs> <laughs> planning includes software design. When you stand at the whiteboard and you sketch it, that is a form of planning. Yeah. And when you, when you are talking to customers and you are analyzing what they're telling you and you're, perhaps you're looking at, at usage metrics or whatever, that is the input to planning. That is getting mm-hmm. the information you need in order to do the planning. We we can all sit in a room, stick a finger in the air and pontificate about what the software should do. But unless you've spoken to a customer, a user, you've spoken to the people funding the project, you've looked at metrics, uh, you've done your homework, mm-hmm. then all you're doing is pontificating. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, this is where some, um, some devs, and I say, I, I am a dev and I love devs. And sometimes they get caught out because they think what is good for the code is good for the customer. And we need to separate those two things out. And the product owner is the specialist in what is good for the customer. And the developers what is specialist in what's good for the code. Now, they're not water type roles. They, they overlap at times and they've got valid views, but I want them represented by people who can have a conversation. Yeah, you know, and you can, you can air that difference and you can talk about it, and you can find a cooperative solution. And
0: when you talk about, you know, what's good for the customer versus what's good for the code, one of the other one of the other quotes I pulled out of the book, which I thought was great, where you said, when thinking in terms of an objective, the value being delivered with that objective, and I put extra emphasis on this quote, should be blindingly obvious. <laughs> yes. And I think that is, again, it's like, it's one of those like, duh things, but you do need to say it because- if it's a good objective, anybody without even knowing what your team does should be able to look at it and say, ah, I get it. And yeah. that, that inadvertent or advertent, you know, uh, intentional transparency leads to a much higher, I would actually say a much higher fidelity of dialogue than would just be, you yeah. know, yeah. we're yeah. going to implement
2: Kubernetes and we're going to move container. You know, <laughs> like,
0: it's not, again, it's you know, way that, too down the rabbit
2: hole. That quote came directly from from experience working <laughs> with this client. And the first time through the OKR process, we knew they should have benefit, you should have value. And we made it, OK. Oh, and we, we sat in the OKR review meeting and there was this senior manager there looking at OKRs. Mm-hmm. So how, what is this? How does this add value? How does this, and he, he, was, he was, European, he like accent, how does this add value? How does, what does this do for the customer? And on his right-hand sol- shoulder, he had a consultant from a well-known expensive consultancy and they, they both just you know, went through this constantly asking, where's the benefit? Where's the benefit? I'm sure they're on automatic pilot. So, three months later, we made it even clearer. And we went back and we had the same meeting on the next set of vocals, and we got the same set of questions. <laughs> and it's like, you were going, oh, God, it's obvious to us. But, I, but as I noticed, as we forced ourselves to Make it blindingly obvious. We improve the quality of our decision making. We could really trace it back to what the customers and the user were going to get, and what was the benefit from them. Yeah, I'm still convinced my senior manager, and it's an expensive consultant, on autopilot and just parroted that. (laughs) But actually, it had some benefit,
0: like one of those old dolls, the children's dolls, where you pull the string in the back, and they ask, "What's the value? What's the value?"
1: So that, that's actually a good segue to another question I had, Alan. that's uh, this one's tricky and I don't even know if there's an answer. It's more maybe it's just an awareness thing yeah. to make sure you don't fall in the trap. but um, how does one balance upfront marketing sales, user impact analysis against the teams closest to the OKR, supporting the data driven opportunities? Because it was mentioned that providing the company more revenue or money isn't really the best you know motivator for employees for purpose, yeah. but that's also the most translatable and easiest way for objectives to get traction uh, yeah, so yeah. especially if they're publicly traded.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. and you know, it's interesting because you you started Jay by raising uh, Mike Burroughs, and this came up yesterday in, in his agenda shift sessions. You know, the sec- the open secret is companies don't exist to make money they don't even exist to make profit now i know that's heresy and i know you're sitting in the u.s and there's probably some republican listeners who are wondering what the hell is socialists (laughs) in Europe talking about you know but um if you actually go into what the management books say they talk a lot about purpose and if you dig into the research of what companies make money you find it's companies like you know gore-tex and apple who aren't setting out just to make big profits. They have something that motivates people. But making money is an awfully good indicator of knowing whether you're doing the right thing <laughs> and whether you're going in the right direction. And, but again, we all know we can game those figures. So if we make that the objective, you end up with Lehman Brothers or Enron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so making yeah, the, yeah. money and measuring like that is, Money is a measure of value, and it's a way of comparing things, but it can't be the ultimate goal. And you've, you've got to keep your humanity while you're pursuing that. So I don't think there is an answer, Jonathan. There isn't an answer, but it's, it's a tension we have to be aware of.
0: Money is a, it's a lazy comparator. Because it's one of those things that when you close your eyes and I say money, everyone has a, a, um, a mental image that is, I would say, 85% of the population is going to land on the exact same quasi-same mental image, which is exactly why we use cost accounting to make decisions, even though we all know it's a terrible, terrible idea, right? It's just completely – those two things are completely incongruent, yet we do it all the time. And you, know, you, mentioned, you mentioned purpose is the greater good, and you mentioned companies like Gore-Tex and there's stuff like Patagonia. Um, we're we're big fans of the John Kay book Obliquity here, where oh, they yes, talk, where yes. he talks about how if your intent, if your strategic intent is to maximize shareholder value, you are going to make increasingly short sighted decisions, <laughs> yeah. only to maximize that value, and you're going to pilot the plane yeah. right into the ground. Yes, A- and yeah. and to yeah. your ex- your examples of Lehman, you know, your examples of of some of the big banks, right. Uh, Wells Fargo, where they were just, you know, there was the co- uh, agents who were creating fake accounts just to hit numbers, right? They yeah. they were they were making short sighted decisions based upon a metric, and they drove you know, the plane into the side of the mountain.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you know, in today's, are we in a pandemic or can we say post pandemic yet? Hopefully, <laughs> your listen- your listeners, hopefully, in the post pandemic world, we, we are <laughs> just in the, the tail end of the pandemic. world this, this whole idea of purpose and meaning has become so much more forceful, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. longer it's, we've, we've got more important things to worry about the money
0: right there is um yeah. I, I had that conversation with somebody else alan that one of the one of the hopefully good things to come out of this whole situation yeah. is people not only start taking assessments of their own lives and what they their own lives and what they think is mm-hmm. most important i also think mo- most importantly there is a renewed perception of mental health And a renewed emphasis on, you know, mental health does not mean the explicit lack of mental illness. And that is something that we as a a species, we don't deal well with Hmm. societally. Hopefully that'll- I'll get a and,
1: better. And not, not to continue on with the topic, but it is, I mean, it is fascinating. And I know a lot of our listeners are probably struggling with, like, you you might have one, several teams that are doing these types of plannings and objectives, and they're solving customer problems. They're relentless at understanding them. They have personas. They know the customer experience. They're doing all the right motions. And they even come up with this grand plan of great things they want to do. And then the higher-ups and leadership just go, yeah, but that doesn't really align with our business model and revenue yeah. projections and targets." And that's a really tough conversation. And it's kind of deflating. Yeah seems
2: sometimes yeah it's one of those conversations that should never happen you should never get into a situation where the okrs the teams come up with don't align with that and that's where i think you know, the, the product owner's got a real role to play here because mm. they're on point for this stuff there may be other people in the picture there may be dev managers and god knows who but you know um the the co- and the man the leaders should absolutely be explaining what they, they're wanting but they've got to leave this white space for the teams to, to create in. And it's the product owner who needs to be the one who is most aware of what the company and the market and the strategy and all of that is. So they can. They do have a bit of a leadership role in setting OKRs, but they're not, you know, they're not the one who sets them. It's the team thing. But the product owner needs to be the one who, who can you know, help the team focus on that and say, look, the, the company is trying to do this. These OKRs you've suggested are great and there may be reason for doing them, but we need to justify ourselves to ourselves in the first instance and perhaps next week to some other people in the company why the things we are doing are are not quite what they, 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 you know, the blindingly obvious thing. And there's reasons for doing that, you know. And I remember, again, going back a few years to my experience for OKRs, the team I had, Um, We're doing a lot of revenue protection work and the senior leaders are pushing for OKRs about new features, new markets, new customers. And actually, it's a DevOps team. A lot of what you've got to do is simply keeping the lights on so your existing customers don't walk out the door. (laughs) And sometimes you have to explain that, you know, OK, we may not be spot on the strategy and the things you've been talking about because there's this other thing which you may have ignored called the existing customers. Yep, yep. It, it, that's the whole Jeffrey Moore, you know, um, zone to
0: win. And, you know, you, there yeah. is a chunk of your business that is keeping the lights on the doors open and the revenue flowing while you're ideally looking for your next self disruption, yeah. right? To, yeah. to, to reinvent your own stuff. Um, so we, t- we talked a lot about objectives. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the results piece because this yes. is where I kind of had my mind blown, right? So when you, you you have a quote here, Alan, that when you think of results, Results typically fall into one of two categories, feedback or risk reduction. And that was another one of those like, oh, wow. Because to me, I was like, shit, why did I come up with that? Because it (laughs) truly is true. Like when you think about a clear objective that's blindingly obvious that everybody can understand, the results of that objective should be either I'm learning more, which will make me change what I'm going to do next, or I have mitigated a risk. And by mitigating risk, I've moved that risk to someone else offloaded and gotten it out of the way right yeah um i was like "Whoa!" Well, i'm like this is kind of like this is acceptance criteria right here like uh, this yes. is if, if and if your acceptance criteria don't look like that well then maybe you really need, need to rethink the objective because you're yeah. you're going in a different direction
2: yeah yeah I, I think key results are are something to struggle with and again you know it's a, for you know, it's very easy to fall into the trap of the objective as an epic and the key results as the 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 stories and sometimes it does kind of play out like that you know there are there are several pieces to this jigsaw and you just need to build them but really you want the sum to be more than the, the you want the whole to be more than the sum of the parts and you you need to okay what what are we gonna do to make sure that objective delivers on the value? Well, if it's the wrong objective, we wanna know quickly and we wanna make it a better thing. And in today's world, you can more or less do anything with technology. You still wanna get tripped up by it. So we wanna reduce the risk of us doing it. And you're exactly right, it's acceptance criterion. Um, Something else you're probably gonna mention is, I say in the book, when we're looking at OKRs is test-driven management you know, it's like you know, you're a coder, and you sit down. Uh, I need to write something to do so and so. Okay, what am I testing? What are my tests? Okay, so that's your objective. I need to achieve this. How am I going to know what's going to get in the way? Okay, these acceptance criteria. These are my key results. You know, so it's not completely like that either, but it's one way of thinking of that. And once you make that leap, that it's more about um, test-driven management. It's not a great leap to then say, hang on, OKRs are an API for the team. The objective is, is the thing that you can call into and the key results describe how it behaves. And so when you start interlock teams, like these are the APIs, these are teams describing themselves to their peers and their superiors and God knows who else and what to expect from us when you call us this month.
1: So to piggyback off that analogy, uh, it goes along with the key results trick section. So I'm going to read a quote, bear with me for a second. Yes. As you become more experienced in writing OKRs, you will find that there are a number of tricks that can be used to make key results more achievable while also giving the team more autonomy. Cool. This is where it got interesting. Uh, as a result, teams should find that they can aspire to greater goals because it's safe to fail. Yeah. Um, basically, the question that comes out of that or comment is, you know, companies that visualize their work heavily, you know, and, and they're overly transparent about expectations, failing or learning, as people may call it, like, it's, it's it's okay, it's accepted. That is a very big culture change and struggle in a lot of companies. Yeah. So, I mean, how, I mean, now you're getting into coaching through empiricism and the behaviors and mindset changes. And based off what you just described on the whole API and teams describing themselves, I mean, Going off that analogy, what happens if that team wants to do data-driven testing and very high-complex technical stuff, and then they fail doing it, but they did a really good job? Yeah. You know, (laughs) were they successful?
2: (laughs) Well, they've learned some value, haven't they? They've learned something. And maybe they've learned what not to do next time, risk reduction. There's value in these things. But was that what they set out to do? Mm, right. was, is that what the company sees? And I, you know, everything you just said about failure, I'm not sure we'll ever get to a point where we we can either remove the word failure or completely accept it. We're, we're wired from a very early age, aren't we? You know, the red mark in your book versus the green tick. Um, but you know, failure is failure's really powerful because failure is a great motiv- motivator to change. If you do something, you do it successfully. You do more of the same, you know. You, you, you know, it, It's um. I know someone talking about the turkey illusion. The turkey is there every day, and every day the farmer shows up and gives the turkey some food. So the turkey thinks the farmer's my friend, yeah? <laughs> And the turkey has no motivation to escape, you know. The farmer looks after him, and one day the farmer shows up and cuts his head off. Yeah? Uh, you didn't see it coming. If you have a failure, though. You don't want to repeat that. If, the danger is if you become too happy with failure, if failure becomes positive, it loses its motivator to change. So, failure actually motivates you to say, I do not want to do that again. What shall we do differently? So, I don't think we can eliminate failure, and I'm not sure I want to eliminate failure. So, your, your team that tries some wacky stuff, some way out there stuff, gets out of depth and fails. I hope the company is big enough to say, everybody makes mistakes once in a while. You know, we've learned from it. What's the Thomas J. Watson quote about, you know, why would I fire the man who's failed? He's just, I've just paid him to learn. Now, if (laughs) quarter after quarter, you completely and utterly fail your OKRs, I do hope you've got a good explanation for it. Uh, It may be your license to really push the boundaries. You may have, may make sense, but, I think you should be able to explain yourself, at least to yourself, and if other people come asking questions, I'm okay with that. They may be big evil managers, but I think it's for your own good if people ask questions.
1: And I always seem oh. to have more anxiety with a team that has very good looking metrics that's not meeting business objectives and outcomes than a team that has bad metrics, because at least you know there's at least a correlation. But when the yeah. metrics look good yeah. and the business, yeah. you're like, oh boy, this is deep. This is going to yeah. get. Yeah.
2: Deep. What <laughs> are these metrics really telling me? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. With every, I, I guess maybe
0: most, you know, Alan in was talking about the, the almost, almost, um, digestive tract aversion to using the term agile coach but most agile coaches i know i can tell when they're good when they see great metrics and they go okay what's wrong who's faking this right like if that's your knee-jerk remark yeah to me if that's your if that's your gut responses this is too pretty somebody's messing with something yeah i'm like okay they get it because they know that it's like nature it's not that pretty
2: yeah we're back to anyone <laughs> yeah <laughs> so
0: good. one of the questions i had for you Alan, was. Um, Uh, so you talk about how, you know, OKR shouldn't be top down in position. It really should be, you know, your, your leadership tier should set your North star. These are, this is what overarchingly we're looking to go. And then it really, you empower your teams and you let it trickle down to say, okay, you figure out how to get us there. How does a company and, and uh, here we go. I work with a lot of companies which are scaled agile, right. And they have that level of, um, (sighs) imposed hierarchy i'll I'll be generous imposed hierarchy how do how do some of our you know we have a lot of we have a lot of listeners who are consultants in those type of orgs how do they kind of plant the seed to get this bad boy going to start thinking in terms of um objective setting or, or north star setting at the top and then having the the path there bubble up as opposed to the the, so, we were just having this conversation, John yeah. and I, earlier today. The portfolio manager talks to the solution manager who talks to the program manager who talks to the product owner. How, yeah. do, we, how do we kind of circumvent that whole bureaucratic way of working to, to, to drive some true change?
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure there's a silver bullet here or a repeatable solution. I think uh, a lot of it's going to depend on how open people are to hearing new ideas. I think a lot of this is actually already embedded in what we've been talking about with Agile and, and is, you know we've been struggling with for what, 20 years now, about actually carving out some space to let the term teams be autonomous. Um, in some ways, this goes back to some of my earlier work. Where I talk about you know the, the idea of a project doesn't really work in our world. It may or may not work in other domains and I'm sure there's some software endeavors where it fits, but on the whole, we create products and those products you know they are enhanced and they change over time and it doesn't make sense to draw a line and say this software is finished um and we, let's not get into the details about that i have an excellent book on it project myopia another one continuous stitch <laughs> go buy them for today <laughs> um, so you're going to have ongoing products So I think that means you're going to have ongoing teams. The teams are going to roll with it. The teams are going to be together over time. There'll be some changes, but the teams will stay together. And those teams are really the experts in what's going on. You know, they're the people who understand at the lowest level what's needed. And I think we need to build some respect for that. But how we get those in the higher higher echelons of authority to start to do that, I'm not sure. I think there's a lot of stuff in the management textbooks about empowering teams and about devolving authority. And, you know, let's, managers are not stupid. And they've read a lot of this stuff. A lot of them haven't. Let, let, let me, I'm considered bad by a lot of software people because I went and got an MBA. I, I'm guilty, okay? I decided I learn how to do management properly. Uh, but what I observe is a lot of people become managers and they just seem to follow, I think, the Arnold Schwarzenegger manual you do this you do that I'll go over there suppress the gunfire telling people to. if you actually read management books and you look at what managers are taught on proper training book it's not about that it fits right in with agile Mm -hmm. and so in those higher echelons I think you need to appeal to that sense of 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 you know letting the teams be autonomous and letting the teams have have their own authority and giving them space you know the, the expression white space or or the other one was um, simultaneously tight and loose that was another one that came out of a book years ago it 's about giving space, and how you spark that i'm not sure I think it seems easy in my mind. we just need to throw a load of stuff away and leave space <laughs> but <laughs> it's never that simple. Great. Right. It's it's finding those enlightened people who, who can do it, who can make you space, who can step back. And teams need to, in the first instance, earn the trust. They need to do stuff that ends trust. Because there's a great breakdown between all sides in this. There there really aren't any sides anymore. We're we're all digital businesses. If you're not already, you're going to be soon. If you're not going to be soon, then Amazon's going to own your market, okay? With digital businesses and in the digital world, you can't draw a line of where the business ends and the technology starts. And we've got to get this mindset, that it's, it's this change. But how you start that mindset, you know, in my more cynical moments over beer, I'll tell you, it's a generational change. Yeah. But I also know that, you know, um, let's be honest, I'm getting old. I'm over 50 now. Uh, my generation, the generation who pioneered Agile, we are in the ascendancy. We will soon be those leaders and they will be looking for it. And for those people early in your career, test your, test your leaders, give them the chances, ask them, probe them. I think more and more senior leaders will be prepared to try it because this is what they've learned. And some of the, the first people starting to enter now have grown up with Agile brilliant brilliant and with that i think that's the best way to wrap it so
0: alan um if people want to get more information find you uh how do they get in touch where do they go to look for your books um yeah where, where can where, people want to go in on the on the okrs and a lot of your other work i actually have two of your other books on my kindle we'll, we'll have you back on when i get to those eventually um yeah. where can they where should they go
2: okay so i i'm just alan kelly.net OK, that's my domain name, and that will take you to wherever my website is at the moment. And similarly, on Twitter, I'm Alan Kelly Net. And on LinkedIn, I'm Alan Kelly slash was it in Alan, LinkedIn slash in Alan Kelly Net. Alan Kelly Net. And to be honest, if you just Google Alan Kelly, there's me, a tank collector and a marriage guidance counselor. You'll work <laughs> out which one's me.
0: either way that's going to be a really interesting conversation because i guarantee you all three of you should can talk about objectives and key results just it would be wildly different in uh in in terms of uh frame and outcome narrative i should say but that would be that would be pretty wild so um on behalf of john and myself alan i want to thank you so much for coming on on behalf of alan john and myself i want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again we've got a discord server show up and start arguing we have some great conversations going on we've got a patreon on. we're committed to being free if you want to chip in you'll get a bunch of junk from me in the mail that you'll probably kind of enjoy uh and last but not least shout out to Machine Men records and their artist krebs who provided our uh, outro music we appreciate that so once again we want to thank alan and until next time this is the Seattle uprising podcast signing out